Hi, Mark. Hey, me too. How are you? I'm good. I'm looking forward to our non-emergency beginning of 2024, Just Us podcast. Everything feels a little bit like an emergency at the beginning of 2024, <laughs> but I, I think we agree that we have no emergency topics to, to, to discuss today. Just, just fun ones. Just fun ones. Well, I'm hoping that we can talk about a topic that we are beginning to do research on and our research assistants along with our co-author Quinn Curtis have been uh, we've all been collecting some data on these and the topic is uh, sustainability linked bonds uh, which when we were working on our prior green bonds paper we were told by many of the insiders in the markets that sustainability linked bonds were the way of the future and if i remember correctly the big part of why they thought these were the way of the future these were the product that really was going to take over the green market uh, was that they solved a lot of the problems that we were worried about in the traditional use of proceeds green bonds in that they created a greater credibility mechanism. And so I'm, I'm hoping we can uh, talk a little bit about uh, those mechanisms now that we have dug into these a bit more. Would that be okay? That sounds good. I'm, I am all about thinking about credibility of the ESG bond issuance, since everybody else cares so much about it too. <laughs> I, I I think uh, incredibility, or uh, <laughs> that might be appropriate. But let, let's let's just before we even talk about it, the one of the things that surprised me, we both in this academic year are teaching climate finance classes. I just finished mine with Quinn and you're about to begin yours. So we're sort of at the perfect transition point. And one of the things that surprised me that some of our guests, multiple guests talked about, nobody contradicted, and this seems to be consistent with all of the research reports I have seen, is that 2023, while it, it has seen growth in the green financial products sector, it's, the estimates are this sector is now uh, close to a trillion dollars worth of issuances and about 14, 15% of the total uh, bond market, which is staggering given that the 10 years ago, 15 years ago, this was zero. With a, There was nothing. Sustainability linked bonds seem to be diminishing in popularity. Is this something that surprises you? Uh, because it has to be the context for the rest of our conversation, I think. Yeah, I mean, aren't, aren't you just sort of puzzled by 
this whole ESG market in general. Uh, in in a sense, I want to be happy since we keep hearing how much money needs to flow into climate adaptation and mitigation and into transitioning into a lower carbon economy. And so as this market grows, then I, you know, in some ways that's kind of an optimistic story, I guess. And yet I have a really hard time convincing myself that this separate ESG market is really anything different from the regular bond market. And I, I share your puzzlement at how SLBs seem to have diminished in terms of issuance volume, because it was only you know 12 or 18 months ago that a lot of people in the market were telling us green bonds are drying up. And you know that their kind of cynical take on that also was you know, issuers are running out of green projects that they want to fund. And, but, you know, there's still demand for, you know, the green label. And so SLBs can solve that problem. And so they were in, in part in that like half cynical way, uh, telling us that we would expect the SLB market to grow and the green bond market to shrink. Uh, and that, that seems to be kind of the opposite of the dynamic that we're seeing now. Yeah. So that, that, a that's, that seems that's the part that i also find interesting people and i'm just going to repeat repeat what you said that we need a different word than mansplaining since we're two men uh man 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 peeding man repeating uh, <laughs> i'm going to engage in man you can, man peeding you can man peeding but we were told to man pete because I think this is important because it didn't materialize by investors, big investors in the market, that we didn't need to worry about the fact that use of proceeds bonds had no credibility in the, attached to them at all uh, because these new things, sustainability link bonds were coming on uh, in a big way and they had real incentives built into them in terms of step ups, maybe even a few step downs, but mostly step ups. Uh, and that they liked these products and they especially liked these products because no longer did issuers have to have actual projects to do. Now, I am reading in the reports that I was uh, looking at the, before uh, the podcast that investors don't, maybe investors don't like these anymore because they're not credible enough, um, it, which is sort of the whole reason they were supposed to be working was because they enhanced incentives and now they're going back because uh, green bonds themselves have big, are are going gangbusters. Now they don't like these, and because I'm so cynical, I, I think maybe the story has to be something uh, different. I just don't believe this. This sounds like a bullshit story to me. It it does, but maybe that's a good way for us to, or a good point for us to start talking about this kind of credibility story uh, that we've been told in a number of contexts. And, you know, in principle, I have to say that I've always kind of liked the coupon step up or step down model. We've been talking about this for a long time, and we've 
talked about and written about the lack of enforcement mechanisms in the use of proceeds, ordinary green bond context. And, you know, I've always been sympathetic to the argument that it doesn't make much sense to have you know, a, a failure to use proceeds in an appropriate way baked into the events of default in the bond that nobody really wants to exit if that happens. And you'd have all kinds of cross default problems that you would create by, by doing that. And so, it, you know, my kind of starting point was to think, all right, the right enforcement mechanism here is that you have a coupon step up. And I'm talking about in a use of proceeds bond too. If you, if they don't do what they say they're going to do, coupon step up and you have the coupon step up be punitive. And so this, the SLB market for me was like a model of what an enforceable, credible commitment to do green stuff could look like only with the problem that the step ups were tiny. You know, they weren't, large enough to create real incentives. But, you know, the more I look at these bonds, the SLBs and the the documentation that goes along with them, the second party opinions and all that, the more I think that maybe the credibility problems run much, much deeper than just not having a big enough step up. What are you thinking? So, uh, so there's been lots of writing about SLBs. You know, we did a podcast episode with the Bloomberg folks mm -hmm. who did that really nice piece expose about how the the step-ups were too low and often these companies were purporting to achieve targets that they had already achieved before they even started <laughs> uh, doing yep. the bonds or uh, I think our students, they found all sorts of other dodgy things that were being done uh, in these SLBs where you would say, uh, look, the target, we're going to meet this target, but we're, you know, so like a shipping company will, would meet the target for emissions for only the boats it wholly owned. Uh, whereas it might, uh, like the vast majority of its fleet might be independent contractors that were out there chugging polluting along away. and yep. just polluting away and like using really old boats, but their own fleet with that super new boats. I think car companies are like use these techniques all the time. But I have also begun to think as we look at more and more of these that while those kinds of stories are good for the headlines, that that's not really what is bothering investors here. There, there's something more fundamental about the structure of these instruments that that's not that's not working. And and the question then is whether or not one can design the instruments to be better because after all i mean this is just this is a new market so we we should we should have lots of experimentation we should have crappy products and it, it should get better and so i i want to ask you about uh, i can't remember whether this was uh, a product that denmark had said it would use uh, and then did not use but um one of the concerns that at least sovereign issuers always have with green instruments and 
particularly sustainability linked instruments like for example uruguay that did one of the only sovereign sustainability linked instruments is that they want the bond uh, to be fungible with all the other bonds or or maybe fungible is the wrong word they want it to fit on their curve on their yield curve they don't want it to be some weird thing that is not not uh, tradable by traditional fixed income purchasers and 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 this is the this is part of the reason why uh, gdp index bonds have never prospered at least so we're told is because traditional fixed income investors they want fixed income products and as soon as you start inserting a bunch of contingent stuff it, it gets messy for them they they many of them are insurance companies they need to match assets and liabilities quite precisely so how uh, maybe you remember the denmark thing better but shouldn't it be possible to to construct these slbs where you have the main green main bond and then an an attached attached instrument that maybe like some of the gdp warrants issued by greece for example you could separate it out and it would trade trade differently I have this vague memory that Matt Levine wrote a piece making fun yeah. of some of these too. So yeah, maybe that, maybe this is not good. Well, so that's what I was going to say. I remember a piece that Matt Levine had written. Uh, I think "Green Bonds Without the Bonds." I think was the the title. <laughs> it sticks in my sticks in my head. But I I so that was my my initial kind of understanding. I never really bothered to look this up because it was uh, or to investigate it because it was such a small volume of issuances, but I had thought that there was some initial idea floated that you'd have like the green commitments, commitments maybe with scare quotes around it, right? But the, whatever the green commitments would be, they would be kind of detachable and separately tradable, like a warrant or something. Only it's not clear what, in the context of a use of proceeds bond, it's not clear what you would be trading, right? Because it has no pay, no payout. Maybe it's just it, like a pretty piece of paper you'd like Put on your yeah, wall you or hang something. On your, like, yeah, it, it would have be like an aesthetic market or something. Yeah, an ideological marketer. So like, that was, I I had no idea how that would really work or what it would mean in the green bond context. But in the context of an SLB, you could sort of see that. You could see, especially if what you were worried about was this bond blowing up your yield curve. You would have. You could imagine this like detachable, like, separate warrants in effect, right? That would either pay zero or would pay potentially a lot depending on whether the target was hit. And then you'd have the concurrently issued vanilla bond that it was attached to. And, you know, maybe that's a solution to the to the problem. I was looking at both like Denmark and Germany don't seem to have followed this model. They have some weird swappable. Okay, model let's get where, let's get to yeah, the yeah. Swappable. Like I don't, I barely I can... understand this, but but maybe you okay, can help but me. I want to I want to talk about the separability because I really like I like the separability, and maybe you can tell me that this this is off track, but um, because it's the because that people haven't been using it. But since it's a new market, maybe they will. So it would achieve the goal of the fixed income people could buy 
they could go buy a Uruguay SLB and then they could sell because they hate any contingent aspect. They could sell on the market the green linked um, part of it. And the green linked, let's say you had a five year bond and these SLBs are typically structured. So you get like an extra 25 basis point if uh, they don't meet target. I think they call them SPTs. I, I just, all these acronyms like, just yeah, are yeah. beyond me. But there's like a SPT and a KPI and a an NGO and a GMG. Um, but uh, uh, you don't meet your SPT in year four, you get 0.25 or 12.25 basis points more. So if I'm like a, you know, environmentally conscious teenager in Oslo, maybe I can just buy this on cents on the dollar. And then I, I like read the company uh, disclosures every day. And I look for this because I'm policing the company. Um, I mean, it seems like it, 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 it would make sense because um, the black rock buys the the fixed income security that it likes in its fixed income division a norwegian teenager buys the green linked part because they want to monitor or they're betting on it because they don't want to monitor they're, they're betting against it um, but it gets you both the monitoring and the liquid bond at the same time and and it only li it lives for four or five years and the, these things only pay you out a small amount in year four or five like uh, issue enough of these and it's kind of like a um it's i mean it can be kind of like a cute market uh a cute cute market for uh, young green people to to uh to invest in. I mean, for our class, maybe they'd even be affordable. We would have, we would we buy them for our students. Yeah. yeah. And we could like denominations of 200,000. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it, why like, wouldn't that like they, that should be the structure that gives everybody what they want. I, so I feel like we don't really, I'm going to say this differently. I feel like it is not clear what anybody wants in this market and that that is in part the problem. I mean, we started this discussion based on some of the things that investor friends had told us with the, you know, the, we asserted that credibility was sort of important in this market and that that was the point of these instruments and maybe why they, you know, they were expected to grow and it's not, you know, it isn't that people don't care about credibility. It's this stuff about how they're kind of atypical and off the yield curve and things like that. That's making them not work. But I feel like I don't have any real confidence that the objective of an issuer or an investor in issuing a sustainability linked bond is to create an in incentive structure to make sure that an issuer in fact hits targets that it would not necessarily achieve without the bond. Did that, did that make sense? Like I just, you know. Yeah. So I, I, do you believe that that's actually what people are trying to do here? And maybe so they just decided that they really don't want that, but 
if you really don't want that, if you're not interested in creating incentive structures, then you really shouldn't be interested in SLBs because people are going to look at you and be like, what the hell is this? It doesn't create any incentives. So maybe the reason green bonds are that market is growing and the SLB market is shrinking is because everyone's had a come to Jesus moment and they're like, shit, we should steer clear of this instrument that suggests we care about credible incentive structures because we don't. Okay, so let, let me let me lay out some of the things that we've found and I'm going to borrow from the memos of our research assistants and from what I've done in terms of myself looking at uh, one particular aspect of the SLB uh, uh, industry, which are these, let me just remember, <laughs> the two POs. It's, it sounds yeah, like yeah. a Star Wars character, <laughs> like 3PO. And wasn't there a Star Wars character? Three. C3PO. C3PO. Okay. So somebody for climate third party opinion. It's just nobody really knew that at the time. (laughs) So here we have these things called 2PO's. There's like so many of them. Like, let's see, they're all over the place. And thankfully, they're just easily publicly available because everybody wants to advertise them. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to remember all the aspects, but I, I want to note some of the key aspects. So you read them. They're just, um, they're torturous to read. And in fact, I was cursing you and Quinn when I was reading them for having suggested that this was something worth studying because just the print is really small and they use the same language all the time. But that, I wonder whether that's the key. So first, they use the same evaluative language for these consistently. Like literally, if we ran these through a boilerplate program, like one of those programs that we use to check student answers for a plagiarism or something like that, these are highly plagiarized. And and the bottom line grade is always basically the same. They're highly credible or ambitious. I think the word ambitious seems to be very key. Apparently, ICMA says they have to be ambitious. So they're like ambitious or highly ambitious. Everybody's ambitious or highly ambitious. So that's one aspect. There's a lot of boilerplate language in terms of the evaluation. They're also almost all, I've never seen one that is not, they all disclaim any legal responsibility uh, for basically providing a verification. I mean, so it's a little bit puzzling because you would think if I'm verifying something, maybe sometimes I'll put my money where my mouth is, but they, nobody does that uh, in, in this industry, no matter how good, how credible. Third, overwhelmingly, these are 25 basis points. The step up is either 25 basis points or maybe if it has like two levels, it'll be like 12.25, 12.25. But some magic number is 25 basis points. No matter what the company is, no matter what what goals it is uh, trying to achieve, it's trying to achieve some social goals of uh, more women on the board of directors, or is it trying to reduce carbon emissions or scope three, scope two, scope one, still 25 basis points. And doesn't matter what the company is, it's still 25 basis points. Now, there are some exceptions. There's like one 
100 basis point uh, somewhere there. Wasn't like Uruguay's. Well, we'll new, talk uh, about that one later, I think, because okay. that's okay. not even a, that that's quite distinct, I think, but very right. interesting. But th th there is at least one hundred basis point uh, instrument uh, um, that the RAs identified, but it, it, it has a weird structure, but overwhelmingly 25 basis points. And then they all say we satisfy the ICMA framework. Um, I mean, I've tried to look at that that framework. It's just a bunch of vague, you know, hand wavy things, and they they're all satisfied. And then, last but not least, uh, the bottom line they they say is that this is just in line with what everybody else in the market is doing. And I can I can confidently say they're exactly right. Everybody has the same thing. So, of course, they're all in line with the same nothingness. What they do not do, not a single one that we have been able to find, explains why 25 basis points is the right incentive for this particular company to do what we want it to do. Like, instead of like this incentive product seems to be designed to be standard not to have incentive like maybe it has incentives but it has this it's the goal seems to be to to have a super super standard thing that i don't need to look at because i know if you get a 2po uh, if you you know if 2po is there it's going to just be the same as everybody else's 2PO. Yeah, I mean, so don't you, I think the more I think about this, the more I think we are sort of watching in real time as people realize that this market, the SLB market in particular, has no point to it. I mean, it, it, part of me is sympathetic because I think it would be really difficult and very costly, and each issuance would be kind of bespoke if you really took seriously the idea that we were going to design, um, we should use financial engineering, right, to align the issuer's incentives with good climate policy. You know, the, the huge information asymmetries, even with these second-party opinion providers and whatever expertise they have, like, they have a hard time knowing what climate path the issuer is really on and what it really can and cannot hope to achieve and what types of um, interest rate step-ups are going to have what types of incentive effects on its behavior. Um, you know, it would be incredibly difficult to figure those things out with any degree of certainty. And you'd wind up with instruments that don't look remotely similar to each other. And I think, you know, so so what we have is a market that's just not that it's it has the kind of it's like walking around in a zombie suit of a <laughs> of a incentive tool but it just nobody is willing to put the time and effort and money into making a real incentive tool and i don't think anybody in some senses it doesn't really make sense to use borrowing as a way to shape the incentives of government officials in quite such a, a dramatic way. So I, I kind of wonder, like people, it, the only acceptable instrument is this kind of namby-pamby, generic, nothing instrument. And I think 
maybe people are realizing that it just doesn't like, why would you issue and hold such a thing? If all people are going to do is point at it and be like, look, idiot, like, what is the purpose of you say you're doing something good for the environment with this market, but you're not doing anything. These commitments are bullshit. Um, why not just go back to green bonds, which are of course themselves bullshit, but nobody seems to care about them being bullshit. And so that one, it's easy. You can be like, oh, the issuer is going to build green stuff. We're all happy. And you don't look like a fool for participating in that market. Don't you look kind of like a fool for participating in the SLB market? Well, Uruguay and Chile were certainly hoping that this was going to boom, right? I mean, I think they invested a lot uh, Can we in talk their about SLBs. Yeah, okay, please. Yeah, because so, uh, they, 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 I mean, they spent a lot of time and money and they wanted, they were purporting to be market leaders and, they, and they're, they, they're credible. Like the, when they yeah. say they're interested in doing climate related, uh, uh, projects like you're you're inclined to be like, all right, well, I have some faith that that's actually going to get done. So what I was reading, there was just the World Bank structured some loan recently for Uruguay to Uruguay, right? right? To they, they... yes, and it 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 inverted the normal SLB structure, so it was not a step up; it was a step down, and it was a big step down. It was something like a hundred basis points. And I have no basis for evaluating these claims, but the the claims that were backing it, and I have some faith that the World Bank is a little more serious about this than, you know, whatever 2PO you know, opinion writer would participate <laughs> in a normal SLB. But the, you know, there were already these ambitious targets, but the hundred basis point step down was for meeting even more ambitious targets beyond the ones that the country had already set out. I don't know if it was in you know Paris commitments or what, but in any event, the, the structure is you need to earn your reward and you have to do more than you've already um, made a, a commitment to doing. And I, you know, that that structure looks a whole lot better to me than the one that exists in the SLB bond market. I don't know if it's generalizable, if people would be interested in those instruments, but it seemed less problematic to me. It seems like that's what you would want. So in the Uruguay SLB, like the SLB that they issued with a lot of fanfare, when we discussed it in class with somebody who had who was an expert on it, was basically meeting their Paris commitments. And so, you know, the students asked our visitor, well, you were going to meet your Paris commitments anyway. That Those were commitments. Weren't you? <laughs> and in fact, you know, you, you guys are on the front lines of saying everybody else should meet them. And we applaud that. But then you issue a bond saying, give us more money because we're going to meet them shouldn't you do anything more? And I mean, the response was that, look, this is just an added incentive to meet our Paris commitments. And given that the Paris, you know, your countries all over the globe are reneging on their Paris commitments, not Uruguay, shouldn't we have added incentives? Now, they, they, this, this all gets very circular. Uh, but, but the, 
what the students wanted, and I, I want too, is you have Paris commitments. We applaud you for that. But if you, we're going to give you some goodies if you do even better. And that seems to be the World Bank thing. And the World Bank thing also seems to be credible because I think the World Bank would be able to advertise great success if it actually had got less money. So mm -hmm. it'd be like, look, we're going to take less money. We really succeeded here because we're getting less money. It's sort of, um, but who else? I mean, this is why, to, to go back to the warrant thing, um, if I were the Norwegian teenager, or, you know, forget the Norwegian teenager, like the students in our classes. So I, I, I'm curious as to the students you will get in your uh, class next term, but two L's and three L's taking uh, upper level classes, let's just say sometimes are not as motivated as their 1L counterparts. I don't know what you mean, but yes. <laughs> yeah, it, is, it is just possible that some of them are already uh, dreaming of their big law firm job and their vacations and things like that uh, and are not quite as focused. But that is not true in a climate finance class. These students care. And they do all the damn reading, and which means I have to do all the damn reading myself. And they ask really tough questions. And they, they, they would, I think, they would buy um, this kind of instrument, uh, like the, the warrant aspect of it. Right. And then they would celebrate if they didn't get the payout like the World Bank, it, it, like that, that, why can't we have the instrument where you're, it doesn't look like you're fooling the investor and the investor actually wants you to not pay them. Uh, I feel like this would only, either this is going to, so you called it like a cute market, which yeah, yeah, um, yeah. is another way we could like replace a retail cute. market, but uh, acute. Yeah, cute. but we could replace cute with irrelevant, and <laughs> be talking about more or less the same thing, right? So the only way this would work as an incentive structure, especially given the massive amount of money that might be needed to meet some of these objectives, if they really were uh, ambitious in the first place, um, you know, it's always gonna if you don't you think you might not make the objective. It's probably always economically rational to just not meet the objective and pay whatever uh, SLB penalty is coming your way. Then it would be to dump a bunch of money into trying desperately to meet the objective, right? That it, it, a different way of putting the point is that if these are really going to be incentive devices, they have to result in very large aggregate payouts in the event the target is not met, right? Like that's that's the yeah. only way that this is going to be a meaningful tool for shaping behavior. And I guess one question I have is just why would you, isn't that kind of just like poor fiscal management and poor, if you're struggling to meet 
your objective. So fine, maybe you're, you've just been cynical all along and you weren't serious about them and whatever, but like everyone is investing to some extent in adapting to um, a warmer world. And everyone is to some extent fiscally constrained. And so why is it rational for a government to agree to an instrument that says like, if shit goes bad, you're going to impose a giant fiscal penalty on yourself. That just sounds like, I don't know, poor stewardship of a, of a country and an economy. Right? So like that, the, the instrument I kind of want to see, if I were a finance minister, I'm not sure I would think that I could responsibly agree to it. Well, so if we look at the, the example of oil warrants, for example, Mm-hmm. or the GDP-linked bonds. I mean, when the country does do really well or oil prices surge, or uh, then it's kind of a disaster to tell your people, oh, yes, we're doing really well economically, but we already sold the right store. <laughs> Come and have a parade where we drive <laughs> trucks full of money to the dock and load them on ships bound so, for Connecticut. Right, right. So you, <laughs> you can't do that. So I, I do see, that's why I think, why not have the cute product, but the cute product might not, might do nothing. You know, I have this imagination, this this image of lots of young people, environmentally conscious, buying these little retail products. Like the warrants would become like a little retail product, whereas the main bond would be held by the Blackstones and the State Streets. Um, and that that you would never want to not meet your target because the adverse publicity would be just so horrible uh, because they have all these people like the wisdom or the, the monitoring of the crowd. But this, this is just, this just all shows how, why I don't actually have any meaningful investments that ever succeed because this, the more I think about it, it seems completely stupid, but, but like the com- combining, if you have a warrant type instrument, it should combine the retail aspect with the institutional aspect, but but maybe we we need to, you know, it didn't Den- Denmark try to didn't they? Can we go back to them? They have some like twin bond swappability thingy that like isn't it? Are are they trying to do something like this, or is it the opposite? Yeah, but it shows me how much I don't really understand about this market because, so I, I think it's the German green bond model seems to be the same. But as I understand it, the green bond is issued like a little bit after the vanilla bond, but it has otherwise identical financial characteristics. And it it has these green commitments associated with it, but it's at the investor's option at any time can be exchanged for a vanilla bond. And Right, so you can, and you can't swap it the other way. You can swap a green for a vanilla, but not a vanilla for a green. And for the life of me, so like the way this is explained is like that. Well, the green bond is going to be less liquid, and for the life of me, I can't understand why that really should be. 
because I mean, I know that there are maybe a different investor bases and so forth, but if it has the identical goddamn financial characteristics. <laughs> and you can swap it. And you can swap it. I'm like, what? I don't I so I'm I am a little bit confused by that product, but yes, it is can, um, there can, is a much smaller market for green bonds and they're trying to ease those people's concerns about liquidity by allowing them to swap into the much larger uh, non-green bond pool of debt. But I guess I don't understand why people don't just view them all as fungible since they have, as far as I can tell, the same, not just the same financial, but maybe even the same legal terms. I think they do have the same legal terms. So what I, I, I haven't fully thought this through, as some of our listeners will say, is always the case with what I say. But that's my role here, to, to have half-baked ideas. Uh, but here's my speculation. There is a sense in this market that if you issue a green bond, at least right now, there's so much demand for it, at least in particular from European funds who have like like they have green asset classes that if Germany issues a green bond and a plain vanilla bond, there's going to be extra demand for the green bond. So there's that's, that's where they're getting their greenium, although it's a quickly diminishing uh, thing we are also reading and hearing. But so there's extra demand in the initial issuance. And so they, like all these green funds have to buy it but then it should be super liquid and you wouldn't need the swappability thing, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the swappability thing strikes me as like the, the green effect is only initially and then, then everybody wants it to be the same. And so they give you a little swappability so you, you can call it green and then, I don't know. I just, I don't understand it. Okay. We clearly need, maybe this is, this podcast episode is going to be we can title it a cry for help and, and uh, then we've identified that we need to try to wrangle a guest from the <laughs> finance ministries in denmark and germany perhaps yes. to explain please because also their greenium is disappearing right like that not only is a the greenium is disappearing but b the the biggest growth sector in the green product green financial product world seems to be sovereigns. Everybody's very into sovereigns doing green issuances, even though uh, no sovereign even comes close to claiming that these this green promises give them any incentive. For them, it's very clear. They've already done this shit. They, they've, they, like, this... Like the choice of what green stuff to do is like a different parliamentary committee or whatever. And the bond issuances is like a different department. Uh, but this is the most popular sector in the market. I'm not sure I have a question there other than um, the whole thing uh, confuses me. I think we the lesson we can take away from this is that the SLB market maybe ought to die. I don't know. Um, maybe is needs an even swifter and more timely death than the green bond than the green bond market. I, well, I, the green I bond market is not dying, even though we might even we though... might have tried to 
tried to do our part to kill it. It's not dying. It's growing. I'm just, as a sign of my poor judgment, I'm just increasingly persuaded that the market I thought might be a model for a good contract (laughs) structure uh, turns out to be not only a model of bad contract structure, but also just kind of a pointless market. It's like we all were given a mandate to design a set of, I don't know, a set of clothing that would create a good incentive structure to make sure we got to work on time. Like you could imagine a set of clothing that would do that. It would probably have you know, like razor blades that were keyed to <laughs> clock and would slice your head off if you were late. And like, it's just that nobody actually wants that set of clothing. And so if you tell us to design it, we're going to have some ridiculous bullshit product that does nothing. That seems to be, that's a terrible metaphor or analogy. But or it's, it, was, it is but, designed, they, they are at least the tupios that which are the key part of this, right? If I want to understand the product, I go to the tupio, which supposedly tells me all about it. And they tell me the same thing. I pick up one after the other after the other. I mean, if my job were to read tupios, if I were at some investment fund, I, I would have to put my head in the oven and turn it on high. To get, I think is, the job of the TPO is to is to persuade you that you don't have to read the TPO. Yes, yes. Now, so it's so um, fluffy. I, I don't want to say, like, they're just so standard. But in the bond market, standardization in in certain aspects one could argue is good because it makes it easier to price. It means you don't have to read it carefully. Um, They're quickly tradable. Like whenever I trade it, the trader doesn't need to look at the terms to see what, like what is like the, what are the basis points for this? They just know it's always going to be some tiny 25 basis points. Um, Is there any merit in that or that's just undermining? There's a lot of merit in that, but doesn't that, that's just another argument for why this market doesn't make sense because you can't accomplish those goals with the type of bespoke incentive structures that you would need for sustainability linked bonds to be real sources of incentives to meet climate targets, right? Like you can have one or the other, you can have a bond that's relatively fungible with other bonds and easily tradable and all of that. Or you can have a like a nice little incentive package, but I'm not sure you can have both. And SLBs are showing us you can't have both. You can have a bond that has like an SLB shell wrapped around it that doesn't actually do anything. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Yes, incentive structures are, uh, this type of incentive structure has to be kind of bespoke. I keep using that word. Like the Uruguay World Bank thing, which I believe- You got to read that to know what the hell you're getting and whether you want to take it seriously and whether you really can expect a hundred basis point step down at some point in the future. I mean, again, not a bond, but like it would look different for everybody. And then- now there's all this friction in the market and nobody wants that. All right. I think at that point, we have to call it in terms of our we're so confused <laughs> yeah, SLB confused. episode, despite us having really dug into these 
a lot more than normally we would do. But the deeper one digs, like, I mean, it, it almost seems like the lesson really is stop digging, you know, that yeah, metaphor. I, <laughs> I know that I can't really promise this, but I would like to never read another 2PO again for <laughs> as long as I live. All right, Mark. Thank you. Hopefully somebody will uh, uh, respond to our cry for help. Yes. Bye, me too. Bye-bye.